Having had a, an Easter break, we've come back to our series of uh, preaching in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Okay, Paul, got good, thank you. And uh, I was so excited when we decided that that's what we were going to do, look through Ephesians again. It's a glorious, glorious letter. Probably one of the best letters that Paul wrote concerning the church. Paul gets excited about the church and he wants us to be excited about the church. For all the faults and failings that we see, um, Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. And we need to love the church and give ourselves for her as well. So we, today we're beginning in chapter 4, just the first 16 verses. And as David said, uh, under the, the title of the bigger picture... Before I go on, I don't think David mentioned it, but Steve is preaching at uh, City Church Whitstable today and uh, we trust that uh, Steve will serve them well. We know that he will. So the bigger picture. Why the bigger picture? Well, when we become Christians, um, it's, there's something really wonderful obviously happens to us and we're consumed by the fact that our sins are forgiven, that God is our Father, we're, the, we're children of God, and uh, that we're joined to the church and maybe there are things in our lives that are beginning to get sorted out, problems that we had. But Paul wants us to see a bigger picture than that. He wants us to see a lot of what God has been doing behind the scenes in order for that to happen to us, for us to be saved. It's like he pulls back the curtain and says, look at all these amazing things that God has been doing on your behalf, which you are now uh, reaping the benefit of. And he talks about these things as mysteries. He said there are things that were in God that we call mysteries that have been um, not seen for, for generations and now they're being revealed by God's apostles and prophets. So over the last three chapters, if you can think back that far, um, Paul has been telling us the amazing things that God has done in order to reconcile us to himself, to make us his children and to include us in his eternal purposes. We are people of hope and purpose uh, because of Jesus. And because what has gone before is so crucial to what is happening or what we're going to be considering in the next chapters, I want to just give the summary again, and we'll put it on the screen for you, of um, the the first three chapters, uh, because they are the foundation and the springboard for what Paul has to say. It says, we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, adopted as his sons and daughters, redeemed from our futile way of life through Jesus' sacrifice, given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, seated with Christ in heavenly realms, given the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God's workmanship we are. God's workmanship, work of art, a work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Joined with all those who believe in Jesus to become one new people. We are the church, God's living temple where he lives by his spirit and all this to the praise of his glorious grace. And if you've been following it or if you know it, you know that God did all this without any of our help. He did not have any of our help whatsoever And this is the foundation and the basis for Christian living. Chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, marks what we might call the beginning of the practical section 
of Paul's letter. Paul instructs the church in Ephesus and us to work out in practice what God has worked in us by his grace through Jesus Christ. And it's in the context of the church, the body of Christ, the place where God lives by his spirit. And what we'll observe, I think, is that um, there is a contrast between the way God dealt with his people in the Old Testament and the way he deals with us now under the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, God established his laws and commandments and he said, if you obey them, you will be blessed. Incidentally, he said, if you don't, you'll be cursed. But God said, if you obey them, you'll be blessed. But now in the New Testament, God says, look how I have blessed you. Even when you were dead in your sins, even when you were my enemies, look how I have blessed you out of my mercy and grace. Now respond to me out of that. Now be obedient in your love back to me, in willing obedience. And Paul says in Romans 12, it's something very similar. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why should we lay down our lives for God? Why should we make sacrifices for God? Why should we possibly suffer for being a Christian? Because it's in view of God's mercy. God took the initiative and showed us grace and mercy and we respond to him out of that. Um, Before we move on to the more practical stuff of chapter 4, I want to look again at the last couple of verses of chapter 3. That's verses 20 and 21. And it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That might be quite familiar to you. It's sometimes called a doxology. And it's used in church liturgy, often at the end of a service, to send people off on a high note, I think. And it's very exciting. Uh, It's visionary. It's full of confidence that what God has worked in us by his power has the potential to accomplish all his purposes in us by that same power working in us in ways greater than we can imagine as that power continues to work in our lives through the church for generation after generation. And his aim, as always, is that Jesus is glorified. But I want to just consider two things there. First of all, Paul says God is able Now, he could have said God will do it, but he said God is able. Now, I might be reading too much into it, but I believe what this means is what it suggests is that these blessings, all that God will do beyond our imagination, is not automatic, but God requires our cooperation. He has provided the potential. We need to work it out. Uh, Everything is ours in Christ, but we need to live accordingly. And... Have you ever wondered what glory in the church looks like? Just have a think about that. What is glory in the church? We often sing songs that invite God to display his glory. For instance, we sing, let your glory fall in this room. What are we expecting? What are we we expecting God's going to do when we say, let your glory fall in this room? Is it more ecstatic, ecstatic, exuberant worship or a stillness where God seems especially close or is it like that image in the Old Testament when Solomon dedicated the temple 
uh, and the priest could not stand because a cloud filled the temple. God's glory filled the temple in such a way that the priest could not minister. And maybe somebody who wrote a song thought that would happen because we sing another song, Lord, let your glory fall as on that ancient day. So maybe that person thought that's what we should be expecting. Now, of course, God can do anything in any generation. Um, And we may have even experienced ourselves or we hear reports uh, of some amazing, glorious things that happen around the world. Gold dust descending on worshippers, gold teeth appearing, uh, and uh, sometimes manna appearing in their Bibles, all these sort of things. And of course, God can do that, and maybe some of you have experienced it. But I believe that glory in the New Testament is different. It's different from the Old Testament. And in, in general terms, glory in the New Testament is seen in the Christ-likeness of his people uh, who do works in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to disappoint you. Maybe God will cause gold dust to descend. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the, mainly the glory is in the people of God, uh, re- reflecting uh, the person and character of, of Jesus. And in essence, this is what Paul is talking about in the rest of this letter. So let's read from verses, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in this deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We'll look at this somewhat verse by verse and uh, I think um, maybe we'll have to summarise as we get towards the end because of time. But let's look at verse 1. Paul, I believe, is a double prisoner. It says, a prisoner for the Lord. We know that Paul was in prison in Rome, probably house arrest, as a result of getting involved in a riot in Jerusalem and appealing to Caesar and being sent off to Rome for trial. But we also see that Paul is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The beginning of chapter 3, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, because Jesus had totally captivated him. 
Uh, he was a willing bond servant of Jesus. And so he's a double prisoner, is Paul, and he gloried in both of these. But Paul urges us to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling that we have received. He cons- he's concerned that we live a life consistent with what God has made us to be. Everything is now new. We have new life from the dead. We have a new family with new values. We have a new Lord. We have a new purpose and hope. And as we grow and mature, we should expect to see the evidence of this appearing in our lives and being demonstrated in our lives. Uh, Maybe we could take an example from somebody who joins the armed forces. Uh, They take on a new identity. They operate in a new sphere with a new set of standards, rules and disciplines. And their aim uh, is to develop into a fully fit and mature uh, soldier, sailor or airman. And their new new calling on their life and everything they do and all they work for has to be consistent with that calling. And I believe the same is true of us as Christians. And uh, we have the... Uh, a kind of summary of this uh, that Peter gives us uh, in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a new people with new standards and new values. And God has called us out of darkness to live this life. And there is no higher calling that a human being can receive. No wonder Paul urges the Ephesians not to squander what God at great cost has made them to be. And it was Paul's passion to see Christians come to maturity. Yes, he had a passion to make Christ known where he wasn't already known, to preach the gospel. But also he wanted to see those, those people who were saved come to maturity. And he writes to the Colossians, We proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. That was Paul's passion, to see Christians come to maturity because through that maturity they would glorify Jesus. When we get to verse 2, we see that Paul now tells us how we are to live up to our calling. It's good, isn't it, to know how, not just told to do something, but how. And notice Paul uses the phrase one another, bearing with one another in love. And this indicates that the outworking of our calling is primarily in the context of the local church and applies to all believers. Now, as we mature as Christians, God may call us to other avenues of service. Uh, For instance, God may call us to ministry to the poor or to take the gospel where uh, to unreached people groups or maybe something closer at hand. And that may seem incredibly important to us at the time. And, and kind of overwhelm our thinking that God has, has called us to this important ministry. Um, but it shouldn't undermine our first calling, which is to glorify Jesus in the local church. That's what this is all about. It's about glorifying Jesus in the local church. And the church is God's shop window to the world. Do you realise we are the shop window uh, for God in this vicinity? And um, I don't know if you've had people come to you and say, um, 
you're a Christian, tell me what God is like. What we ought to be able to say is, come and see. Come and see what God is like. Come among us. We're not perfect, but we believe Jesus can be seen among us. So that's so, so important. Verses 2 and 3, they give us a number of Christian graces or virtues that are listed here. And whilst it's true that God, as Christians, God is at work in us, and as the scripture says, to will and to do is good pleasure. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, making us more like Jesus. Um, it, we need to agree with God's aims. What is God's aim for our life? We need to agree with that. Otherwise, we might be working against God. We need to be led by the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. And if you look at these characteristics, I'm sure you'll quickly identify them as those that were displayed by Jesus uh, when he walked this earth. So we look at them briefly. Uh, first one is humility. I think most people, whether they're Christians or not, would acknowledge that Jesus Christ has been the most influential person in the whole of the world history, of world history. Yet he accomplished his mission in a completely humble way, in complete humility. And it's been quoted for us this morning already, but we're told in Philippians that although he was God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped or take advantage of, but emptied himself and became a man. And even more than that, became a servant and even unto death on the cross. This is Jesus' example, that he humbled himself in order to accomplish his mission, in order to be obedient to the Father. I think humility, simply put, is putting God first, others second, and ourself last. I think it also means knowing and accepting ourselves as God has made us to be, accepting that the gifts and things that that God has made us to be, that we are content with the way that God has made us. Someone has said that humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. I think you can understand that. <laughs> Today, in the world of commerce or entertainment or politics, humility is not a particularly prized uh, virtue, is it? Uh, you only have to watch programmes like The Apprentice uh, to know that humility is not one of the uh, characteristics being displayed by those contestants. And uh, for us as Christians, humility is absolutely essential if we are to leave room for God to work in our lives. We want God to work in our lives, don't we? It's not just us, but humility is important. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is what Peter says. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Notice it's again, it's in the context of the church, toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This takes faith, doesn't it? It takes faith not to be pushy, uh, manipulative and all the rest of it. It takes faith to trust that God is going to work things out for his glory uh, and lift us up in due time. And of course, it will reduce our anxiety if we can put our faith in God like that. I don't know if you uh, recognise it, but it seems to me it's increasingly the case today. 
that people are being encouraged to demand and stand up for their rights and the lawyers are making a fortune out of it, aren't they, at the moment. But Jesus abandoned his rights uh, to do the will of God and be our saviour. And someone has said, and I like this, this phrase, the only right we have as a Christian in the church is to love one another. That's our own, the only right that we have. The second is gentleness. This is a fruit of the Spirit and should not be confused with weakness. It isn't weakness. It is power under control. And Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus had almost infinite power, as it were, uh, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. And yet, this is what he says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said this in the context where the spiritual leaders of Israel were proud, legalistic and oppressive towards the people. And Jesus saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. And this is why he came to him like this. And I believe this is why Jesus was so accessible to so many people. The downtrodden came to him. Those who were ashamed of themselves came to him because of this, because he was humble of heart, because he was gentle. And if we want to be accessible to people, people in need, then this needs to be our attitude as well. This needs to be our demeanour in the same way as Jesus. Paul tells the Colossians, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in unity. The next is patience. God, well, Peter tells us that God is patient. He says, God is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. That's why God has not brought judgment on the earth so far. He's longing for more people to come to, to repentance. He is patient. I think in any church there will be, believers will be in different stages of understanding and maturity. And it's easy for, for us at times to become irritated and frustrated about the apparent slowness of others. Um, maybe it's because they don't grasp things quickly or because they seem to be taking a long time to change from their worldly ways. Have you heard it said of people, they don't suffer fools gladly? Okay? I hope nobody says that of me because we have to suffer fools gladly. That's what God asks us to do. The Christian is exalted to be long-suffering uh, just as God is with us. So I hope that nobody says that of us. They don't suffer fools gladly. Sometimes it's almost um, given as a compliment. It's by far uh, from being a compliment. As far as God is concerned, we need to suffer and we don't need to think of them as fools either. Okay. The next one, bearing with one another in love. This is the outworking of patience and is another divine quality. This involves putting up with another's weaknesses and not ceasing to love them because their faults um, frustrate us or displease us. 
And I guess we all know people who have left uh, the local church over a personal issue, not over doctrine, not over church practice, but over a personal issue uh, with another Christian. And bearing with one another means that we are not easily offended. Are you easily offended? I believe it's as much a sin to be offended as a Christian as it is to give offence. Right? Because it's, it's the old man rising up and saying, who are you? Who are you to say that to me? And so we need not to be offended. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. How many upsets have there been because people have misunderstood one another and they've heard something that wasn't really said and they're not prepared to give people the benefit of the doubt? And that we're to love people um, for the way they are uh, and, 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 and not be put off by the way they treat us. Uh, in the church in California, Bethel Church in California, in, in America, uh, they have what they call a culture of honour. Uh, and I think it's wonderful. And, and it goes like this. I will not um, allow your behaviour to, towards me to affect my behaviour towards you. Got that? I won't allow the way you treat me to affect the way I treat you. Because that's how God has treated us. That's how Jesus has treated us. Not according to the way we've treated him, but out of love uh, for us. The next verse, make every effort. Are you ready to make every effort? Or would you rather go to sleep while I'm preaching? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. My, my eyes get heavy sometimes. But Paul says make every effort. Well, having spent quite a lot of time reminding ourselves that we are a product of two miracles, we've been reconciled to God, um, we were once enemies, now reconciled to God, and we've been reconciled to other people who are Christians, uh, um, uh, one would think that it's all now plain sailing. God's done it all, and it's all plain sailing. Some years ago, there was a saying going around the church, let go and let God. Anybody, anybody heard that one? Oh yeah, okay. Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Whoa, just lay back, God's going to do it all. I'm sure there's some truth in it because the Bible not only speaks about the sovereignty and grace of God in our, working in our life, but we have to face up to the fact that there, it talks about there is much need for human effort and perseverance. The Apostle Paul said, I have worked harder than any of you. But the balance was, he said, but the, it was the grace of God working within me. So there's a balance, there's the grace of God and this human effort. And Paul says we're to make every effort. I think marriage can be a good illustration as why we can't sit back and take it easy. When a man and a woman fall in love, marriage brings them into a physical and a spiritual union that the Bible calls one flesh. And I'm sure that most couples on their wedding day think, this love will last forever. This is fantastic. I will always love him or her exactly like this, whatever happens and so on. But we all know that that initial commitment um, needs to be nurtured and renewed as circumstances change and when our marriage comes under pressure from different things in the world. And for a marriage to last, we have to work at it. All those married, yes, have to work at it. Yes, we do, don't we? We have to work. We have to work at it. And, and this is why the marriage vows have statements like this. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. It doesn't suggest 
that it all happens uh, easily from the time of, of the, the wedding and the commitment and the initial love. And the same is true for unity within the church. I think we could say this to one another in the church, couldn't we? Couldn't we say that? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, yeah? Towards one another. Because it isn't always plain sailing. We have to work at it. We have to make every effort. In verse 7, we find there is a foundation for unity. Paul reminds us that the Christian unity has a foundation. Sorry, sorry, verse 4, not verse 7, beg your pardon. Uh, He says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There were those who might say, let's not bother with doctrines and uh, theology, that's for the eggheads, let's just love one another. That's all we need to do. Or they might say, we don't need the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't need all this you know, Bible stuff. Now, as an example, I could sit down with a Muslim and we could share our experiences and we might find there are some spiritual experiences that are similar and that we have some things in common like that. And we might find that we have similar moral values and we might strike up a friendship and feel some kind of camaraderie um, with one another. But there's no way we can have spiritual unity because the, the basis on which the Muslim believes that he is right with God is completely different from mine, completely different from that of a Christian. So we need doctrine. We need Bible doctrine. It's very important and we need these major truths. Jesus said the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So verses um, 4 and 5, Paul reminds us of the truth that makes for unity. Well, just a summary so far. So far we have been exhorted to live up to our calling, work out what God has worked in, be the people God has chosen us to be, giving glory to him through our relationships in the church. And this requires persistent effort on our part and dedication to the foundational truths of the faith. Remember, Paul's aim was to see Christ glorified uh, in his church as we become more uh, mature. So what does glory look like in the church? Have you got the message so far? What is it? It is Christ, our Christ-likeness. It's as we uh, work hard at love and unity among one another. Unity was one of those things that Jesus said would identify us as his followers and would tell, demonstrate to the world that he had come. So you could argue our lack of unity may cause people to say, well, Jesus hasn't really come into the world. So this is the glory of God demonstrated in the church. And now we come on to what seems to be a kind of different section uh, in verse 7. Paul now turns to what God has provided uh, to help this growing process. Notice that verse 7 starts with but. We might think we're on our own, but we're not on our own because God is helping us. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. God is helping us in this process. The church is not a static organisation, but an organism, a living organism, with the ability to build itself up and help its members to grow. 
That's why the example of the human body is so often used and Paul sums it up in the end of this section. Verse 16 says, From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In verse 7 Paul reminds us that the church is a company of gifted people. We are a company of people who are gifted by the Holy Spirit. He says, but to each one of us grace has been given and it's the grace that enabled Jesus to pour out the Holy Spirit. And what we have here is where it says, um, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. It's a picture of a military conqueror probably a Roman conqueror leading his captives and sharing the spoils of war with all his friends uh, and people. And um, you can imagine, can't you, a a Roman general on a horse and slaves following up behind all chained together and cartloads of goodies uh, that that have been the spoils of war that this this general now distributes uh, to all his friends and people. And this is likened to Jesus triumphing over sin and death, receiving glory and honour from the Father and pouring out the Holy Spirit uh, with gifts distributed to each member in the church. And Paul reminds us that for this to happen, Jesus had first to descend to the lowest parts of the earth. The word had to become flesh and dwell among us before Jesus could be glorified and exalted to the highest place. And rather than give us lists of gifts that are distributed across the church, as he does in others of of his letters, say in Corinthians or Romans, uh, he concentrates on gifts of the ascended Christ that are specific ministries or jobs within the church, gifts that are men. We see that these five ministries of apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher, they're for preparing the church preparing the church members to do their work of service to build up the church. And um, I, I, I'm not, we haven't got time to go into uh, these ministries in, in detail, but I want to just give a little um, uh, a few thoughts about the apostle. There's been a long-standing um, debate in the church as to whether these ministries were purely foundational and that once the scriptures had been assembled into what we know as the Bible, uh, they were no longer, there was no longer any need for these ministries since their teaching was incorporated in the Bible. Now, I think there will be Christians who believe that today, but I think an increasing number uh, who look beyond that. Most controversial, of course, is the Apostle, mainly because uh, Jesus personally appointed 12 uh, to be Apostles, and they are clearly, they have a clearly unique place in the um, establishing and founding of the church and will forever remain in a category of their own. There will be no one like um, those 12 apostles. However, in the New Testament, um, there is mention of several others who are referred to as apostles. And the verses that we're looking at today say that these ministries are not just to start the church, but to bring the church to maturity. We only have to look around and say the church is not yet mature. Um, There's so much that still needs to be done in the church. And to my mind, that is an indication that those ministries need to be ongoing. 
Um, and just in the same way that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost wasn't just to kick-start the church, but was to be for, for successive generations. Peter says this, and this one doesn't come up on the screen. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So I believe each generation, each church generation, needs these five-fold gifts of the ascended Christ, just as it needs the promise and power of the Holy Spirit, similarly given from the ascended Christ. Whilst I have said that the 12 apostles of Jesus are unique for all sorts of reasons, I think in terms of the ongoing role of these ministries, we need to remove some of the mystique that is around the title. Um, And I think the best way to consider them would be job titles or job descriptions. Um, We often, as we've already mentioned, um, the New Testament uses the metaphor of a building um, for the church. There are other metaphors, of course. But if we take that building metaphor, um, when there is a major building project, um, the scheme needs a number of experts, doesn't it? It needs planners, it needs architects, uh, it needs surveyors, project managers, clerks of work, foremen and workers um, for it to function. It needs these experts to work in concert with one another in order to produce the building. And I believe so it is um, uh, with the church. And for example, the word apostle actually means a sent one, someone who is sent with a commission. And uh, Paul himself said that he was an expert master builder and uh, that he is laying a foundation and others will be laying on, uh, were adding to that foundation. But he saw himself as a master builder. Well, we have a master plan, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostolic doctrine as contained in the New Testament. So there's no question about that. But as that gospel is preached and new believers gather to form churches, there needs to be the apostolic ministry to make sure that good foundations are laid in those churches. And they are assisted by prophets who help to establish a vision for growth and maturity and ministry in that church. Evangelists help to ensure that that church is outward looking from the outset. And the pastors and teachers, some people say that's one role, but could be two, but never mind, it's still the same. Uh, They can make sure that there's a continuing teaching from the word of God, that the doctrines are held to firmly and that uh, there there are no um, uh, uh, false doctrines that come into the church. So the first apostles and prophets not only planted churches, but they also returned to bring more teaching and help and sometimes discipline uh, as problems arose, sometimes confronting false doctrine that had invaded the church. And I think this indicates that these ministries are not just to start the church, uh, but were continually needed to bring it to maturity right throughout church history. So uh, this is what I believe and this is what we tend to stand for here as the church, that we believe these ministries are for today. They are needed to bring the church to maturity. The church will be weaker and poorer if we don't take advantage of these ministries. So how do we, as a local church, how are we being served by these ministries? Well, most of you will know that we're linked to a movement called New Frontiers, a family of churches 
together on a mission. And that mission is apostolic. In other words, we are committed to continue to recognise God's gifting of these five-fold ministries among us as the church grows and develops. And we want to release these ministries for the ongoing expansion and growth of the church. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's important that we're, we recognise that and we're part of it. So together we're involved in starting churches, uh, making disciples, training leaders and reaching the nations. Um, the recent changes that we've talked to you about uh, regarding what's happening in New Frontiers is because the, in the movement, the movement has grown to a point where apostolic teams are emerging in different parts of this country and around the world. And it's important that they are released in order to carry on their particular ministry with the churches that relate to them. And although we're still part of New Frontiers, we are, along with churches in East Anglia and other parts of Kent and in other countries too, particularly um, in Scandinavia, uh, we're part uh, of uh, an apostolic team um, led by uh, Mike Betts uh, and uh, that goes under the name of Relational Mission. Um, and we see that's an important development in New Frontiers. New Frontiers has been decentralised. Terry Virgo takes on a very different role now. And there, it, the, these various apostolic teams have been released to develop their own ministry because it's too much to bring everything to the centre. They need to be released. So in conclusion then, God has called us out of darkness and placed us into Christ that we might bring glory to him. We have seen that this glory is to be seen in the church as we live out our calling in unity and love with each other and more and more reflect the person of Jesus among us as we grow up and become more mature as Christians. That we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. God has done it. God has provided everything necessary for us to live in unity and harmony together. But we need, as we have seen, to make every effort because this unity has been created through the death and resurrection of Jesus and we need to live up to that. But also God has provided specific ministries within the church to teach and train us, uh, to bring us to maturity in our faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and be our effective in our service for God. Covered an awful lot there, some personal application, but what I wanted to stress is that the application is the church. It's not something extra to the church, outside the church. It's all within the church because the church is God's shop window. And the, God wants to see glory in his church and he will see it in his people as they become more Christ-like and as they live together in peace and harmony and unity. We just put the, the um, last couple of verses from... Um, Ephesians 2, 3 rather, on the screen, just to finish. Hopefully we've given a little more context for this verse. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church. How do you view that now? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 
forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Um, if you uh, if you want to debate more debate about whether there are apostles today, this is a relatively new book. Naturally, I think it's absolutely excellent. It's by Dave Devonish, and it's called Fathering Leaders, Motivating Mission. There's a lot, far, far more in there than I've had even time to attempt this morning. But that is a really excellent book. Would recommend it to you. Anyway, God bless you. If you'd like prayer, please see us. Uh, David or I or others that you might know that will pray with you. But otherwise, there'll be refreshments out the back. Please stay and share in fellowship with us. Thank you.